OG original analog film was better. And I think at the time, you know, in the beginning, it was better than digital cameras. But they they doubled down on what they had done well and what they always did. And then by I think it was 2012, Kodak was filing for bankruptcy. And it's because digital cameras had gotten so much better that Kodak did not have time to react and get into digital cameras. They were then you know, disrupted by the that whole change. And they had time. They could have seen it coming. They did see it coming, but they didn't do it. And I don't know the details of whether. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our Intellectual Humility mini-series with author Shane Snow. If you don't know his other books like Smart Cuts and Dream Teams, you should check those out. If you don't know his ultra-successful tech company, Contently, you should check that out. ShaneSnow.com is where you can get all of that. And specifically with this mini-series, ShaneSnow.com slash IH for intellectual humility is where you can get some freebies from him. So Shane, I know we're going to be talking about entropy and why intellectual humility is important in business and life and, and some more stories. What's a story to kick us off here? So intellectual humility is this virtue and skill that I think is one of the most important things for leaders and innovators in our future. And I think it's also been something that has been low-key essential for the growth of human civilization. And yet it's something that is so hard that when I ask philosophers and psychologists who study intellectual humility What's the best example that you have of intellectual humility in practice, of a person who just embodies this? The only answers I ever get are Abraham Lincoln and like my grandpa, who's 80 years old and super wise now. You don't see a lot of people who embody intellectual humility in every sort of area of their life, or at least it's hard to spot it. And so I'd like to talk about that, about areas where we do see it, and even though a person might not have it in every area of their life, how it becomes valuable. And I'd in particular like to talk about this with the story of uh, not a person, but a document. So the U.S. Constitution is one of the most revered documents, certainly in America, but you know throughout the world as this example of a way to design a government that's been copied, you know, by all sorts of other governments. And uh, you know, it's only a couple hundred years old, but it's it's held up surprisingly well. And built into the U.S. Constitution is this idea that it needs to be a living document. It's the idea that these guys who were all smart and in different ways, but disagreed on a lot of things came together and they said, here's some fundamentals that we we think are going to be important for a society, a democratic society. But also whenever the world changes, we don't know what's going to happen or what's going to be invented, how this country is going to grow. We're going to leave room for additions, for changes. And, you know, there's things that were at the time, I think, enormous blind spots by our standards today, like women can't vote or slaves are slaves, right? Like that that's a thing that's fine, you know, back in their day and that they counted as part of your representation in Congress, but they don't get a vote and they also don't count as whole people. Those are huge, enormous blind spots from today's modern perspective. If we're engaging in, you know, in presentism, we'd say, wow, they were totally wrong about that. 
how could they have gotten that wrong? But at their time, these very smart people, at least as a group, didn't see that. Some of them, them you know, had strong opinions, you know, that those were wrong. But, but as a group, they didn't see that. And so they built into the document, the Constitution, hey, we're going to have amendments that can change it. And so over the years, we've, you know, finally gotten rid, rid of slavery. We allowed women to vote. We've had all sorts of other things that have been added to the Constitution that have allowed it to evolve. And, you know, it, it is one of those things that when you look at today, it's been a long time since we've had an amendment to the Constitution, which makes me a little nervous. You know, the more time that goes on, the more potential entropy we have, you know, things decay if you don't upgrade them constantly, if you don't add new things into the system. And so much has changed about the world in the last, you know, 50 years, 200 years, whatever it is, 10 years, five years, that, uh, that we do need updates. But that was built into the, into the design of this document themselves. So what I'm interested in is talking about people and organizations that do this, either by design that is built into, you know, their charter, or their personal philosophy, or that actually, you know, maybe accidentally are examples of change and upgrade and amendments are part of what's going to make us successful. And uh, so when I ask these psychologists and philosophers that study intellectual humility in abstract from, you know, a theoretical standpoint, they often, you know, they, they say, well, gosh, I don't know a lot of people who that's just how they roll unless they're old and, and kind of those wise people in the rocking chair that it's like they've, they've seen enough things that they do this, but talk about a young CEO that this is how they roll. Chances are there's, there's not you know, a lot of examples you can point to. And then, of course, they always point to Abraham Lincoln. His thing, which I think is a good starting point for us to start on, one of the reasons he was so successful is he built that team of rivals, as it's known now. He surrounded himself with people who he didn't agree with, but who could teach him how he should amend his own philosophies and views so that he could be a better, better president. But I'm curious, you know, Jess, I, you know, I have some stories, I have some examples, but do you know anyone that's, that's like the version of the constitution, you know, the, the person who, or the company who actually very specifically focuses on, we need to add amendments to ourselves in order to grow. Anyone come to mind that, that really is uh, so deliberate about their personal upgrade process? Well, you know me, I only talk about two things, special ops and Warren Buffett. But, you know, I, I will say, let's talk about Warren Buffett for a second. It is interesting to me how often, if, if you really become a student, you read his letters, you watch all the YouTube videos about him, he and his partner, Charlie Munger, they consistently make fun of themselves for in, investment mistakes. And, like, Warren does not view himself as a worse person for having made a mistake. He thinks it's part of the plan. And, you know, he's a guy who is very intellectually strong. Like he talks about how he feels like looking in the mirror is a group decision. Like he learns what he needs to learn. And he makes his own decision. He's not looking for a lot of approval. In fact, the way he built all of Berkshire Hathaway was that. Now, he goes and seeks advisors. He calls Charlie Munger all the time. And, you know, the joke is like that if Charlie says that it's really stupid, then he shouldn't do it. But if Charlie says it's only stupid, then it's probably okay. You know, um, <laughs> I like that. But but he consistently, like decade after decade, talks about like these self-deprecating things and his own mistakes and how much better shareholders would be if the chairman hadn't made a mistake. Except he's the chairman. Do you know what I mean? Right? <laughs> Stuff like this, right? And it is interesting how he's decoupled the ability to make every right decision from that yeah. qualifying him as a good person, as even as a good investor, you know? And 
you hear Charlie say things like, well, we made mistakes before and we're going to make them again, you know, and you're just like, wow, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a very image heavy world of I'm the smartest person and I won't make a mistake. Everybody's so emotional about losing their money. And he's like, hey, if you're going to be involved with us, you need to be prepared for the stock to lose 50% of its value and you need to be able to hang on. It's already done that three times during our lifetime during since we started it, you know, that's one that that stands out to me. I think that's a great example because it's, uh, you know, they're a superlative, right? Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, right? The superlative investors, people talk about them and, and lionize them. And they, they buck what I think is a very toxic, I guess, trend in how we think about leaders or successful people, which is that, uh, you know, we pick leaders who we think are right or who give us the confidence that they have all the answers. And, you know, think about the history of mankind, all of the kings and leaders and presidents who their power was predicated on them being in charge and them being right. And if you, you know, you spoke up against that, they'd have you killed or they'd make fun of you or, or you know, take away your power. That model of leadership, you know, gives you confidence if you th do think that the leader has all the right answers. But the reality is no one has all the right answers. And so it makes me happy to see, you know, the example of uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett as these, you know, some of the greatest investors probably in his history, maybe the greatest, right? most successful, that their whole philosophy is, hey, it's a strength for us to recognize that we aren't going to be right all the time. That's why you should be confident in us. It's not the fact that actually I would be less confident in someone who said every pick that we make is going to be right. You know, and, and they do that to agree that I think is is also superlative. I'll, I'll give you one, you know, just because I'm such a nerd for Warren. A really big one is he changes. He, he got he didn't get into Harvard. So he's all disappointed, but he'd been reading this book by kind of a hotshot at the time named ben, named ben Graham. He found out you can actually take classes from Ben Graham, so he goes to Columbia University. And Ben Graham teaches him this philosophy that is really not in, interested in the quality of a company. They're interested in, has everyone's emotions changed the share price lower than it should be? Like, what's the intrinsic value? What's the company actually worth? And can I wait until the manic depressive crowds quit being over optimistic and become too pessimistic and buy it below what it's actually worth and then just wait long enough for the scales to even out and then sell it? Okay. And uh, sometimes they call it cigar butt investing where companies that were terrible companies, but were trading at less than the book value of their assets. Like you could liquidate the company and sell the assets and make more than you just paid for the company. Right. It's like, they, they call it, it's like picking up an old cigar butt off the ground and getting one last puff out of it for free. Okay. Uh -huh. Right. That is what Warren got good at. That's what Warren got rich at doing. Being Ben, being like the number one protege of Ben Graham made Warren Buffett famous. Okay. Hmm. And over the decades, a lot of other people started following him and those opportunities weren't out there anymore. And yeah. he had a drastic philosophical change from just being a, a Ben Graham guy to following a guy named Phil Fisher, who believed in really intense investing, focus investing, where you learn everything there is about one company and you put all your eggs in one basket kind of investing that everybody says is terrible, but made, you know, Warren Buffett's investment in Coca-Cola totally worked. So, <laughs> so yeah. Charlie Munger influenced him to become more of a Phil Fisher follower and Warren paid way too much for companies like Coca-Cola, according to what Ben Graham says. And yet it's been his number one investment in history was his Coke investment. Okay. And 
like over and over he he has his ratio of Ben Graham to Phil Fisher became way more of a ratio to work towards Phil Fisher. And he says things like principles that no longer work are no longer principles. So the, like, I like that. he was famous. He was such a, a lauded guy for being the Ben Graham guy. And he has over time moved more and more away from buying shares on the stock market and buying entire companies and paying up for quality. Like he, he's not getting a deal when he bought C's candy. He did not get a deal, Mm. but compared to like what it was producing versus what he paid for it. He didn't get a deal. This is against what Ben Graham teaches. And yet C's candy has bought so many other companies for them because it's just been this incredible cash cow for decades and he worships that investment. And he says, without Charlie and inherently Phil Fisher, without Charlie pushing me, we never would have bought that. And that just, you're, I mean, your whole status is based on investing this way. And he's willing to be honest and essentially flips to what what his mentor and hero says is overpaying and does incredibly well doing it. And I bet that he got some flack from people saying, oh, you're changing strategies or, oh, this is a bad strategy. Why would you do this? You, this is what you do. This is the right way to do things. Now you're doing this. How dare you? But clearly he doesn't care about that. And if there's another you know, investment strategy that he decides is going to be better, he, I can see him leaning all the way into that. Right? That's, I think that is the mark of someone who is focused on the right the right thing. And, you know, it takes more fortitude than, you know, than you think to do that. And we talked about this in in the last section of this uh, mini series that a lot of what prevents us from changing in ways that would benefit us is the social pressure of having to be authentic to what we've always done or having to, you know, to stay part of the, you know, the Ben Fisher tribe or whatever it is that it, people take it personally. And when people take things personally, they lash out or they say things and being willing to be okay with that because it's about something else, right? In our, our smart cut series, we talked about making sure that you are asking the right questions, making sure that you're basing your whole problem solving or business strategy on the right thing rather than basing it on the methodology that you're choosing, right? And if the focus is how do I make investments grow? How do I make the most money from investments? Not how do I stay true to my past way of doing investments? Or how do I stay true to something that allows the, the world to, to think of me a certain way? Now, those are the wrong things if you're trying to truly make money at investing. And yet I would posit that so many people don't take leaps into you know new ways of doing things because of that pressure you just, Forbes magazine just wrote about how your investment strategy is so great and how you're so smart. That creates pressure for you to not change that strategy. And, uh, you know, and that it leads even someone who might be intellectually humble in other areas of their life, it, it might actually lead them to not change, you know, in that area of investment. So I, I think Warren Buffett is a, a great example. I honestly don't know too much about his life. I don't know. Do you know if in other areas of his life, he treats things that way, you know, besides investing? Like, is he the kind of person that has evolved and adapted and that? That prizes that you know he's interesting because he very much sticks to certain things he lives in the same house modest home that in omaha that he's owned for decades he doesn't drive flashy cars compared to anyone in his wealth bracket you know he eats breakfast at mcdonald's every day on the way to work okay <laughs> and he he has exact change ready for her okay and in many ways he's a creature of habit right hmm. And then in other ways, he, he's very vocal about not investing outside of the U.S. He's like, we live in the number one economy in the world. 
he's famous for quotes like, if I can't make money in the number one economy in, ho- in the world, what makes you think that just by going 5,000 miles away, I'll, I will all of a sudden become so much of a better investor? Okay. For years, yeah. he talked about there's no reason to invest outside of America. And then Charlie Munger is pushing him. Let's, let's invest in this electric vehicle manufacturer in China called BYD. And let's do this. And, and he is willing to revisit what he'd said before and go against it. And he, he's, I don't know if you saw the big news in the last 48 hours. He just bought 5% of five of the biggest companies in Japan. Okay. Wow. And actually, I should probably go back and read those headlines. Exactly what it was. But anyways, he's made an enormous investment in Japan in like the last 48 hours. And, you know, from a guy who is famous for don't invest outside America. Yeah. If you're an American, there's no reason to leave America, right? And, right. you know, you hear, you hear about these stories of him and Bill Gates that they go on these trips together that are like discovery trips. Like they went up to Canada and toured the energy industry and did these things. And later he ended up buying a big electricity company in Alberta in the Western Canada where I grew up. Right. But it's Tucker got a guy who's like endlessly curious. I mean, his partner, Charlie Munger, there's kind of a joke at his house, his kids about his kids thinking that he was just a book with two legs growing out, you know, (laughs) right. These guys that, you know, Warren's always saying it's not too hard to get rich as long as you have eight hours a day to read and think. And he is much more interested in, the financial results for his shareholders than what people think of him. At least his actions would suggest that. Yeah. So, you know, the, you see this kind of headline all the time. So-and-so who says they would never do this, does this. What a jerk, right? And we love to pile on to, you know, that kind of narrative because it makes us mad. Like we feel betrayed or we feel, you know, but it doesn't matter. What, you know, if, as lo- if you're upgrading to something that's better, if you're doing the right thing now, it doesn't matter if you're wrong in the past. I mean, I think what's what's weird is if you try to pretend like you never said that. I mean, people do that, and that's that's awful. But I, I, you remind me of this personal story. I, I had a friend who I got in an argument with one time about generic drugs. So she was saying she never takes like generic ibuprofen because you can't trust it because it, it's got to be you know not pure or whatever. You got to take the name brand. And I said, no, there's standards, you know, FDA, like they would never sell something in America that was didn't pass the, you know, the test or whatever. So why not go with the cheap stuff? And we got into like a really intense argument about it. And she would bring it up every once in a while and we'd fight about it. It was like a weird thing to fight about, but we'd fight about it. I was really on the side of like, no, like you're being ridiculous. This is conspiracy one-on-one, you paranoid jerk. So, and then, you know, it's come out over the last few years that a lot of generic drugs that are sold in America are, there's huge problems with them. You know, drugs that are manufactured overseas, like I think in particular, a bunch of them being manufactured in South Asia, where this big scandal, these investigations have uncovered that when the U.S. FDA inspectors go to inspect these generic drug factories, they spend a week cleaning things up and putting on this pretend, you know, North Korea style show of like, look, everything's perfect. Look at, you know, all these happy workers and all the standards are fine. And then as soon as the inspectors leave, they go back to, you know, there are even things like supplements like turmeric. Some of these factories were putting lead shavings into turmeric because they're cheaper and they are the same color. So anyways, so after finding out about this, I did not want to have a conversation with my friend about this because she's going to say, see, I told you so. Cause I had for so long spent all this time being, I, and I think I was probably kind of mean about it. Like basically calling her dumb for believing that, you know, generic drugs weren't fine. Uh, and then when it became very clear that, you know, you need to be uh, careful 
because of these investigations, I didn't want to even talk about it anymore. And, and so for, if I were to say, you know, now uh, to say, become like an advocate for can't trust generic drugs. I'm going to be part of the investigation of these. Like we need to speak out against this thing. You know, she would probably have a problem with that because of my past behavior around it. And yet that shouldn't prevent me from being careful about my health when I'm buying, you know, medicine. And, and yet that is a factor. Like, I don't want to talk to her about it still. And so, you know, that's, I think, very human, very human. And I, I'm glad to hear, you know, stories about Warren Buffett having these strong opinions and then going against someone is the right thing to do and not caring if past people are going to say, you know what, you two-faced, you know, two-timing son of a gun, how dare you make this investment in Japan? You know what? You learn, you adapt, you change. It's okay. Like having the strong opinions, okay, as long as you're open to revising it later. And, and, you know, not worrying about the consequences. You know, there's a layer to this, I think, of treating people nice, you know, disagreeing well, you know, and not being snippy about it. Like I probably had been with my friend and, you know, it probably is motivating me not to bring it up with her anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this is part of human nature, which is also why I think it's so hard to find examples of people who do this in every area of their life, who are willing to be you know, intellectually humble in every area, which is maybe why, you know, it's when I ask some of these people, who is someone that you think is a great example? It's hard to hard to think of it because we all have areas to work on when it comes to that. Well, I, I have another story. I know this guy, really really smart guy. He was a journalist and he started this tech company to like get like New York Times bestselling type of journalists to like come help you with your inbound marketing at your company. And so contently, I think <laughs> about you. You have told me stories about how you were sure contently was going to work. And, mm -hmm. and how it was going to work. And then you guys did it and it didn't work like that. And you yep. look at like, you know, the millions and millions and millions of dollars that your company is worth. And had you not been willing to be honest about that was a great theory. Real life didn't pan out that way. Objectively, right. contently would not be the size that it is. In my observation, I think you're the one that told me that, right? Can you, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can you give us an example of like, man, we realized people needed more than just an author. They needed a tracking system. Or we realized that we can't just make it in fees here. We need to offer this. Or, Yeah. So, I mean, those are both two things that really happened, right? Like we, we had to change the business model from one of taking a percentage of what people did on our platform to charging for software, um, charging a subscription for software. That was a, a big one that, that we talked about at length before. The one that comes to mind, honestly, is the most recent one, which is hiring a new CEO and letting her change a lot of things about the company that we would have, that would have been anathema to us because of, you know, just the way that we built it. And yet seeing the company now surviving this, you know, pandemic and recession in a way that like we would have been dead if, if not for her, I'm convinced. So one of the areas that really stands out for me about this is the most recent. It's with our new CEO that we hired uh, about a year and a half ago. And she has changed things about the company that would have been anathema for us as co-founders, things that, that hadn't even occurred to us really, that it turns out the changes that she's made has allowed the company to not go out of business during this recession, during this pandemic. So we're really glad that she we brought her in. But part of what happened is eight and a half years into the company, 
we co-founders realized that we were not going to get to that next step function of growth with our own skills. That, that we had done a good job of getting from zero to, you know, to a, a pretty good, you know, tens of millions of dollars in recurring revenue from software and tens of millions of dollars in recurring revenue from uh, content marketplace transactions. And, but we were not going to get to a hundred million with our own skills. And, and in fact, growth had flattened over, you know, we, we were probably having this conversation two years too late. And so we, we hired a new CEO. She was the former chief revenue officer of Time Inc. Had, had sold that, turned that company around and, and sold it uh, for a lot of money. And after we hired her, we stayed on as in kind of consulting capacity, all three of us co-founders for different amounts of time and, you know, very part-time to help her do things the way that Contently does things and to help her understand the way that Contently does things. And one by one, we've all left. Uh, I got added back to the board, but one by all, we kind of dropped off and, and she's running the company now. And after you know our old CEO stopped being involved and after our old CTO stopped being involved and after I stopped being involved in marketing, all these things have now changed for the better. And the staff, you know, one of the things that I, that I think was really hard, would have been really hard for us to do, is she cut staff costs you know, consolidated some roles with our, our account managers and, you know, the, the folks that are doing upselling as salespeople and the folks who are doing the project management for our clients. She combined those into one role, basically an account strategist role, and it eliminated some jobs, which I think would have been really hard for us to do as founders who, you know, we know these people to an extent that that, that clouds, you know, our, our decision-making ability when it comes to, you know, to cutting staff. But because she did some of those things, not only has she gotten our retention up by 20%, which, you know, for years we've been stuck at a certain percentage, and now it's up way higher than industry average, but it saved the company a lot of money. So when the recession is hit and, you know, sales are down because of the pandemic, the company is still profitable. And it wouldn't have been. It probably would have, we would be asking our investors for more money or, or more loans or we'd be going out of business. So things like that that she's done that truly did upgrade the experience for our clients and save the company money are things I'm really grateful for. But it takes, you know, when we're talking about humility in general, uh, you know, recognizing the limits of your abilities, intellectual humility being a subset of that, recognizing the limits of your intelligence and knowledge, I think it was actually quite hard to admit that we couldn't do it. You know, we couldn't do the next level. And actually now to, to admit that someone else was needed to lead this company that I care so much about that, you know, I want to be there for them. And yet if I was the one that was there for them, it probably would be worse. So that, that comes to mind in particular. And I, I think it's, it, it makes me feel better when I look at the kinds of businesses that have managed to survive for 60 years, you know, businesses that don't just go away as the world changes. They're the ones that look a lot different now than they did when they started, or even than they did, you know, uh, I, I think in particular of companies like IBM or Nintendo. I think IBM's cool, a cool example. You know, they got started, they were, they're doing like punch cards for, you know, these big computer, you know, the old school computers that used to take up a whole room. You know, it was this real hardcore programming punch card thing for doing mathematical calculations. And then they started making typewriters and then they started making electric typewriters and then they started making personal computers and you can't buy an IBM PC anymore. They, they let go of personal computers. I think they were making laptops at one point and, and now they do like cloud software and professional services. They have 500,000 employees at IBM. 
and they're not selling anything remotely close to any of the things that they've sold from, you know, whenever they started, like the 50s to the, the 90s, you know, even the 2000s. Now they, they make artificial intelligence that, uh, that does like cloud computing calculations. Think about a company like that, that employs so many people. So many people's lives are better for it. They help so many companies run their companies. And, uh, you know, I would say the quality of life of the entire world has to some measure gotten better because of IBM, if they would have stuck to the punch cards or stuck to the PCs or the laptops and not let go and, and done something different, and probably, you know, there's a lot of pain associated with those changes. If they at any point would have stood still on one of those products, they, you know, a lot of people's lives would be different and a lot of people wouldn't have jobs as a result. So, you know, Contelli is nowhere near an IBM, but that's the kind of company that I would like to be, you know, to have started the kind of company that when I'm 70 years old is still around and looks very different. I don't care if we're making computer games at that point, you know, as long as it's, you know, to some degree, I hope that the vision is still the same. You know, we're helping creative people make money doing what they love and we're helping businesses be better businesses. That's really what Contently is about, helping businesses be more helpful and, and do good. But if that is in some different form than content marketing 50 years from now, but it's employing a lot of people and it's accomplishing that, how amazing would that be? So. You know, I think a lot of times, though, in my past as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, I was really hung up on the thing and on me being right about the thing. And, you know, I had this one. I can't remember if I told you about this. It was basically like a Pinterest before Pinterest, this site that I, I built. And it was crappier than Pinterest, but the same idea. Collect things around the Internet that you like, put them on these little bulletin boards. But I was so fixed on my version of that idea that I didn't launch it and I didn't launch it. And I kept having to add features and I kept having to, you know, to justify when I'd, I'd run it by, you know, user testers and they wouldn't really like the experience. I would try to persuade them that they did. And then Pinterest launched and it was a way better idea. And they, I think are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And, uh, you know, wouldn't have been better if I would have been more open to adapting and to, you know, to being wrong about some things. But, you know, because of, I think, having learned the hard way on that, I was more open to letting go of the reins on Contently and letting someone else, you know, change things in a way that's positive towards our, you know, ultimate mission. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question, but, but I, I have felt that in, you know, the, the bad way and the good way, the, the way that intellectual humility and willingness to change and let go makes a difference. Yeah, that's great. Well, what do you think is, what do you think is a good ending here? How do you want, how do you want to close off this episode? So one last story that illustrates this idea of entropy that we talked about in the last episode and, uh, and we hinted at it in this episode, this idea that everything will eventually break down if you leave it alone is the story of Kodak. Kodak was one of the most successful companies of its time, you know, making cameras and film, really innovative technology, known for being a really well-run business, and it completely missed the change to digital cameras. So in the, in the 90s, as things started going digital, digital camera technology started coming out. Instead of letting go of some of its cash cow resources and and moving to digital or at least exploring digital kodak basically tried to convince people not to go digital tried to convince people that og original analog film was better and i think at the time you know in the beginning it was better than digital cameras but they they doubled down on what they had done well and what they always did and then by i think it was 2012 kodak was filing for bankruptcy and it's because digital cameras had gotten so much better that kodak did not have time to react and get into digital cameras they would have been you know disrupted 
by the that whole change. And they had time. They could have seen it coming. They did see it coming, but they didn't do it. And I don't know the details of whether it was wrapped up in ego or wrapped up in overconfidence or not being willing to consider that digital could be good. You know, these are some of the things that we'll be talking about in the rest of this series the nitty gritty of what gets in the way of us using intellectual humility and the flip side, the attributes that and skills that we can build that can allow it, us to use intellectual humility and make it easier so that we can avoid being disrupted like Kodak was. But whatever it was, the reasons were internally, they missed what a lot of the rest of the world saw coming, which was digital cameras. They went bankrupt and had to restructure their business. And I don't want anyone who's listening to this series to have that happen to them, either as a person or in their business. We very rarely, I think, are surprised by things that, that can truly over, you know, overturn our businesses and truly disrupt them. But I think we willfully don't explore them or don't see them. It's not that, that we don't have any warning. It's that we don't look for it or we don't consider that we ought to adapt and respond to it. We're, we're having this conversation right now in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic where, you know, the, there's a lot of details and nuances to this story. But the United States did have a pandemic response plan generally and did have pieces in place to head these kinds of things off in the past that over the years we've let entropy happen to. You know, we, you know, not all of us, but, you know, this was a thing that the government had in place, scenarios for how to handle pandemics as they, they come to the country. And that department had basically been defunded and, and dismantled or sort of let to erode. And, you know, we saw, we had a few months of lead time as uh, the pandemic was growing in China and acted late enough that, that now a lot of people have died. And, and it's harder to fight back against an external threat, whether we're talking about a pandemic or a competitor or disruption with technology or whatever it is, a lot harder to fight back later in the game than when you see it coming. Had we tried to head off of the past, had we considered that this might be a real problem earlier, uh, we'd be doing a lot better. And it's really sad. It's a sad example to use, but you know, we don't want the equivalent of that happening in our own businesses. And so this is one of the reasons why intellectual humility is such an urgent thing to develop. And these skills that we'll talk about, the being able to pay attention to, listen, respect viewpoints that seem crazy or seem overblown enough to, to learn from them, whether or not they're true, and to, to be able to discern, being willing to let our enemies and rivals and adversaries tell us what they think and explore that and then filter out what they're wrong about. You know, the getting rid of our ego, making things not personal uh, when it comes to these really serious things, not having it be about us, having it be about, you know, solving the problems and building the businesses. And then being able to actually set ourselves up to not be overconfident, not have blind spots. And a lot of these things happen because of blind spots, not because we want to fail. We want a pandemic to happen. We want Kodak to be disrupted, but, but we're overconfident. And so we don't see what we don't see. Those things are, are things that we'll explore. And, and then the last thing I'll say on this is the other side of this is that the better we get at intellectual humility and all of these factors of it, the more chances we'll be able to give people, human beings, to themselves evolve and you know be forgiven and and you know get mercy that I think all of us want. You know we've all made mistakes and some of us have made worse mistakes or been caught for our mistakes. Wouldn't it be nice if we all treated each other as if we could adapt as well and we could get better? That I think is uh, is the humanist message of this idea of intellectual humility. That, uh, that you know this can help us in a practical way in our businesses and society, 
but also help us to be better people and to, I think, be allowed to be better people by others. So that's what I would hopefully we'll dig into in this series. And yeah, thanks for giving me the chance to, to dive into this with your audience. No, I think it's exciting. Everybody, please go to shanesnow.com slash IH for intellectual humility and get some of the freebies and the goodies and, and some of the stuff that's going to be coming out before Shane's book comes out. Thanks everybody for listening.